This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we're going to be talking about abortion. Okay, so this is going to be a fairly divisive issue. I know for a lot of you guys, it's uh, maybe something that you don't think about on a regular basis, but this is one of the more polarizing things that we can talk about in modern culture. And just to be honest with you, straight from the get-go, a lot of people kind of have... Uh, or they're called one-issue voters. You may have heard that expression before, but maybe you're someone who is just very, very much into immigration, or you're very much into taxation, or government interventionalism, or everyone tends to have that one issue that they will vote for somebody or not vote for somebody based on that one issue. So for me, it's abortion. Abortion is my one issue. That is the lens that I start with whenever I look at a political candidate, okay? So I just wanted to get that out of the way from the very, very beginning is that for me, I can never in my life in good conscience support any political candidate that thinks what's growing inside of the baby is not useful or doesn't have any moral quality to them. So that's kind of where I start out. But I mean, the, the reason why we're talking about this on this week's podcast is obviously the March for Life was last week. That was the 45th such march. Um, and tens of thousands of people every year when they do this, they descend on Washington, D.C. to support the case for life. There's a lot of guest speakers and things like that. Uh, this one was an especially historic one. Uh, Donald Trump actually became the very first president to address the crowd. Uh, he addressed them via satellite. And I think the only other presidents were Reagan and George W. Uh, they both addressed the crowd for the uh, March for Life over the phone. So it was fairly historic. Um, you know, interesting to come from Trump because obviously before he became a red candidate, uh, like five minutes before he became a red candidate, who's about as pro-life as, or as pro-choice as you could get. Now that he's on the other side of the aisle, he's very vehemently pro-life. It seems as if he's definitely changed his tune on that. So we don't know if that's really coming from his heart or if that's something that's just for political gain. But uh, we would like to think it's the former, not the latter. But um, this, before we get into the content today, I just want to give this message to anyone that's in the listening audience right now that is pro-choice. If you haven't turned this off by now, don't turn it off, okay? Just just follow me through the rest of this because, again, I'm nothing if not fair. I try to be fair with everybody and with every argument and everything that I come across, okay? Do not take the coward's way out here, okay? Do not just skip past this podcast because it might offend your sensibilities. Just enter into the fray and I promise we'll all be better for it, okay? So I'm going to kind of go through and I'm going to tackle this issue really in six parts. And so uh, this is what I'm going to go through in this podcast. The first part, we're going to look at the scientific definition of life. In part two, we're going to look at the reality of what's going on in the womb. Part three, we're going to look at the methods of abortion, methods that are used of an abortion. Part four, we're going to look at what Roe v. Wade actually accomplished. Part five, we're going to look at the arguments for abortion and why they're wrong. And part six is what our role is as warriors of God in this fight for life. Okay, so we got a lot lot of ground to cover, so let's go ahead and get into it here. Part one is what is life, okay? What is the scientific definition of life? So uh, I went to Princeton.edu, okay? So Princeton University, it's not exactly a bastion of right-wing, you know, conservative, pro-life thought. So we can just kind of start there. So um, this really kind of gives credence, and I want to go ahead and look at a bunch of different definitional things that were um, brought together by Princeton University. And the very first thing is is this quote that's at the top of uh, this link that I'll provide here at the end of the show, but it says, quote, the following references illustrate the fact that a new human embryo, the starting point for a human life, comes into existence with the formation of the one-celled zygote, okay? So these references that I'm about to uh, talk about, they're coming from that uh, that setup, okay? <clears throat> so this first one is from 1996, and that's Marjorie England. And this is her quote. So, quote, development of the embryo begins at stage one when a sperm fertilizes an oocyte and together they form a zygote. Okay. Now we have Keith Moore in 1988. He says this human development begins after the union of a male and female gametes or germ cells during the process known as fertilization or conception. Fertilization is a sequence of events that begins with the contact of the sperm with the secondary oocyte and ends with the fusion of their pronuclei and the mingling of their chromosomes to form a new cell. This fertilized ovum 
known as a zygote, is a large diploid cell that is, is is the beginning or primordium of a human being, okay? And the last one we have here is from Jan Langman, and that was back in 1975, and it's this, quote, The development of a human being begins with fertilization, a process by which two highly specialized cells, the spermatozoan from the male and the oocyte from the female, unite to give rise to a new organism, the zygote, okay? So, Here's the reality of what we're looking at here, okay? And and first of all, you may have heard me say the dates, 1975, 1988, and 1996. Nothing has changed, okay? So now that we're sitting here in 2018, there's no scientist that would really refute anything that I just said. So the the dates are kind of null and void. Uh, But really, at conception, okay? So sperm meets egg, What all the things I just described. It's the only place in the universe where spontaneously, okay, like literally out of nowhere, there is a new strand of DNA that is not the mother and is not the father. It's the only time in the universe where where that happens, okay? So just the translation to kind of wrap up this first part is scientifically speaking, life begins at fertilization or as most of us call it, conception. Okay, that is literally a scientific fact. This is not something that we're going to go 100 years down the road and all of a sudden they'll be like, actually, no, uh, what's actually happening is this or this. No, no, no. It, it is a scientific foregone conclusion that life begins at conception. Okay, so let's go ahead and move into part two, which is the reality of what's going on in the womb. Okay, so we described how it begins. So let's go and look at what's going on in the womb. So I I like a lot of things that were put together by Francis Beckwith here. He's a professor of philosophy and church state studies, and he's also the co-director of the program in philosophical studies of religion in the Institute of Studies of Religion at Baylor University. Okay, so tongue tied there. But let's look at what's happening in the first 30 days of pregnancy. Okay, so within one week after conception, and again, this is all from Francis Beckwith, so at one week after conception, implantation occurs, and that's the time at which the conceptus nests or implants in the mother's uterus, okay? Now, about the three-week mark, a primitive heart muscle begins to pulsate, okay? Other organs begin to develop during the first month, such as the liver, primitive kidneys, the digestive tract, and the simple umbilical cord, okay? This developing body has a head and a developing face with primitive ears, mouth, and eyes, despite the fact that it is no larger than half the size of a pea. Toward the end of the first month, so that's between uh, 26 and 28 days, the arms and legs begin to appear as tiny buds. A whole embryo is formed by the end of the first month, so around the 30-day mark. Now, from the 18th day after conception, substantial development of the brain and nervous system occurs. This is necessary because the nervous system integrates the actions of all the other systems. By the end of the 20th day, the foundation of the child's brain, spinal cord, and entire nervous system will have been established, okay, by the end of the 20th day. Now, by the sixth week, again, this is still Beckwith stuff here, by the sixth week, the system will have developed so well that it is controlling movements of the baby's muscles, even though the woman may not even be aware that she is pregnant. Now, at 30 days, the primary brain is seen, and we'll wrap up here with by the 33rd day, the cerebral cortex, which is the part of the central nervous system which governs motor activity as well as intellect, may be seen. Okay, so that's all happening really within the first, you know, 30 to 45 days of pregnancy. Okay, and and like most of us realize, most women don't even realize that they are pregnant during that period. Okay, Uh, and now I want to look at the eight week mark because there's a lot of attention paid to the eight week mark and and for good reason. And I think that the eight week mark was broken down beautifully by Matt Chandler. He's pastor, uh, head teaching pastor at the Village Church down in Dallas. Um, So let's go and look at what he said at the eight week mark. So at the eight week mark, the baby. Uh, can be seen as sucking their thumb. Um, If we need to take a little sample from the baby, like a blood sample, uh, they have their own blood. So this is not mom's blood. This is not dad's blood. It's their own blood. Okay. At eight weeks, all of the organs are present. The brain is functioning. And there's even evidence to say that the baby is even dreaming at this period. The heart is pumping blood. The liver is making blood cells. Kidneys are cleaning fluid. The baby has its own fingerprint. This one's really important. It recoils from pricking. The baby recoils from pricking. Okay? So if you try to get a blood sample from the baby's heel, for instance, it is recoiling from that pain. Okay? So at eight weeks, the baby feels pain. So I want us to just remember that and log that away as we go into the other parts of this. Um, And the thing about this is, guys, is virtually every one 
of the around 1 million abortions that take place in the United States and about the 60 million or so that have taken place since Roe v. Wade have happened after eight weeks. That's the reality of abortion. Okay, so everything that I just described is eliminated with an abortion. Okay, so that wraps up the second part. And let's go ahead and move into the third part. And this is the methods of an abortion. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, if you're listening to this with your kids, uh, this may be some time for you to have some parental discretion, maybe pause this and uh, have a little discussion with them and prepare them for what they're about to hear, because this is going to be incredibly graphic. Okay, we're going to go into exact detail as to what happens during an abortion and we're not going to hold back. Okay. So this is going to seem a little bit regimented, a little bit medical, but this is exactly what happens during an abortion. So I'm going to go through several different abortion methods and these were all compiled by all.org. Again, I'll, I'll provide links here at the end and you'll see them in the show notes. So let's go ahead and look at the different surgical abortions. Okay, so the first method I'll discuss is suction aspiration. So and uh, and again, I'll just be reading these so I can make sure that I get all the contents exactly right. Okay, so this is the procedure most often used in the first trimester of a pregnancy. Okay, okay, so that's the first three months. So the abortionist inserts a suction tube similar to a vacuum hose with an extremely sharp end into the mother's womb. The suction and the cutting edge dismember the baby while the hose sucks the body parts into a collection bottle. That sounds like fun. So there's suction aspiration. So let's move on to another surgical one, which is dilation and curettage, or DNC, okay? DNC. In this procedure, the abortionist uses a loop-shaped knife to cut the baby into pieces and scrape the uterine wall. The baby's body parts are then removed and checked to make sure that no pieces were left in the mother's womb. So just to basically break that down for you, they, they put that up in the mother's womb. They rip the baby to pieces. They pull the baby out in pieces and they basically put it back together like a jigsaw puzzle on the table just to make sure there's not like a leg stuck back in there or something. OK, so that's DNC. Let's move on to the next one. Dilation and extraction. This is also known as DNX or partial birth abortion. Okay, this one's going to be fun. So this is used to kill babies well into the third trimester. So this is as late as 32 weeks old. And again, if you if you're uh, familiar with the term partial birth abortion, that came up a lot in the last election because people like Bernie Sanders and uh, Hillary Clinton think that this is an okay thing to do. So let's hop back in. The abortionist reaches into the mother's womb, grabs the baby's feet with a forceps and pulls the baby again. This baby is alive out of the mother, except for the head. The abortionist then jams a pair of scissors into the back of the baby's head and spreads the scissors apart to make a hole in the baby's skull. The abortionist removes the scissors and sticks a suction tube into the skull to suck the baby's brains out. The forceps are then used to crush the baby's head and the abortionist pulls the baby's body out the rest of the way. Okay, let's let that sit in the air for a little bit, okay? A lot of your politicians that are serving you right now think that this is an okay thing to do. So that was dilation and extraction. Let's keep this train going. So dilation and evacuation. That sounds like fun. This form of abortion is used to kill babies in the second trimester. So that's about 24 plus weeks. The abortionist uses a forceps to grab parts of the baby, which is the arms and legs, and then tears the baby apart. The baby's head must be crushed in order to remove it because the skull bone has hardened by this stage in the baby's growth. And now we're going to move on to the last surgical one that we'll talk about, and this is a, a hysterotomy, okay? This is performed in the third trimester. This is basically an abortive cesarean section or a C-section, okay? The abortionist makes an incision in the mother's abdomen and removes the baby. The baby is then placed to the side to die or is killed by the abortionist or nurse, Okay? Those are all the surgical ways to get an abortion. So let's just think about those for a little bit. So most of the time we think about abortion and we think about whether I'm pro-life or pro-choice. Most people don't actually think about this. This is the reality. But that's not it. Let's, those are the surgical ways to do an abortion. Let's go into the medical ways of doing an abortion, okay? So uh, the first one we'll look at is something called Meyer-Pristone or RU486. And so Meyer-Pristone blocks the hormone that helps develop the lining of the uterus during pregnancy. Okay. So this lining is the source of nutrition and protection for the developing baby. The tiny boy or girl is starved to death. And then a second drug, misoprostol, causes contractions so that the dead baby is expelled from the womb. Okay. Let's keep this going. Methotrexate. 
This highly toxic chemical directly attacks and breaks down the baby's fast-growing cells. It also attacks the life support systems the baby needs to survive. When the systems fail, the baby dies. Misoprostol is then used to cause contractions and push the dead baby out of the womb. Mm, So fun. Salt poisoning. This technique is used in the second and third trimester. The abortionist sticks a long needle into the mother's womb. The needle contains salt, which is then injected into the amniotic fluid surrounding the baby. The baby breathes in, again, because it's alive, swallows the salt, and dies from salt poisoning, dehydration, brain hemorrhage, and convulsions. Taking nearly an hour to die, the baby's skin is completely burned, turns red, and deteriorates. The baby is in pain the entire time, we've already established that, and the mother goes into labor about 24 to 48 hours later and delivers a dead baby. So fun. Just wonderful. And then we got prostaglandins. This is the last one we'll talk about. Talk about So prostaglandins. This is used during the second and third trimester. And prostaglandin abortions involve the injection of naturally produced hormones into the amniotic sac, causing violent premature labor. During these convulsions, the baby is often crushed to death or is born too early to have any chance of surviving. Okay, so I just described a bunch of ways that we can surgically and medically ch- kill children, okay? Some of you it didn't even bother, and hopefully some of you it made you sick. Now, now I, me, I am so thankful that we have all these options for women on how they can kill the children that are inside them, or for the men that stand by and watch them do it. We are just so advanced as Western Americans, right? We're just so woke. We're so progressive. This is just so great that we have all these options of choice for this. Really? No. This is absurd. This is ridiculous behavior. Can you, we go back to when I talked about what happens to a baby in the womb when you prick their heel when they're about eight weeks old? The baby feels pain. It feels pain, okay? It can feel itself being ripped apart. Do you understand that? So when you're making the argument about pro-choice, you're making the argument about something being ripped to shreds and you don't even care. It can feel that. This isn't just a useless clump of cells, okay? And I really like what uh, Ben Shapiro recently did this on a show, or maybe it been a year ago. He's tired of the euphemisms, okay? That's what he talked about. Enough with the use of euphemisms. Oh, this is an abortion. This is a, a termination of a pregnancy. It's not that. It is a termination of a human life. It is a murder, okay? That is all that can be said here. You're not making the argument based on science if you're saying that a woman can choose to do that, okay? It's a completely emotional thing to say that. But science would tell us that life begins and that this process ends a life. That means it is murder. The thing is, and this is pointed out, Ben Shapiro did in the video, if a baby were outside the womb, like just outside the womb, and you stuck a knife through its chest, you'd be charged with first-degree murder. Why is that? Let me. What is magical about the vaginal canal? Because a lot of people think that this is not a real person until it passes through the vaginal canal, as if that grants it some sort of great status as being human. There's nothing magical about the vaginal canal. Okay, nothing, nothing at all. And let's just look at the stats about live births. Okay, so in the United States, about every year, and this is kind of going down. Fertility stats are going down in the U.S., but there's around four million live births a year. Okay, so 4 million babies are born every year in the United States. Great. About 1 million babies are aborted a year in the United States. So 4 million born, about 1 million killed in the womb before they're actually born and go past the birth canal. So that's 1 in 5 children in the United States are killed in the womb every year. Where else would that be allowed? Where else? Would 1 in 5 people dying be an acceptable thing. So if you lived in a neighborhood and one in five children died in that neighborhood, don't you think at least like the neighborhood watch would like kind of try to figure that out? If one in five college students were murdered on campus, don't you think there would be some issues with that? Like if one in five people were murdered sitting in line at Qdoba trying to get a burrito or some nachos or something like that, don't you think we would do something about it? But we have such a seared consciousness on this issue that has led us to this, that we don't even think about it in our daily lives, that we we get so excited about a live birth, but we don't even think about the abortion. Okay, so that's where we're at right now. Okay, but you can't listen to all the things that I just said about what happens during that actual process and think, ah, that's okay. I'm cool with it. 
Unless, of course, like I mentioned, you have a seared consciousness. So let's dial it back a little bit. We'll go into part four of the podcast. And that is what Roe v. Wade actually accomplished. Okay, so let's look at the history of what actually happened there, because most people know Roe v. Wade is attached to abortion, but they don't exactly know how and they don't know how it directly affects them either. So uh, this was Jane Roe versus Henry Wade. So Roe was a Texas resident. And so she she sought to terminate her pregnancy by abortion. And so uh, at this time in the state of Texas, whenever this case was being heard, um, the uh, Texas law actually prohibited abortions except to save a pregnant woman's life. So Jane Roe, the hero that she is, she sued for the right to be able to kill her baby uh, and to basically usurp what was currently Texas law. So the actual legal question here was, does the Constitution embrace a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy by abortion? Okay, so everyone knows the conclusion. The conclusion uh, was a decision in favor of Jane Roe. Actually, it was a seven to two decision. And so uh, the court held uh, that the woman's right to an abortion fell within, believe it or not, uh, within the right to privacy. Okay, so this was in Griswold versus Connecticut. Uh, that's where that was recognized, and so they kind of used that as their jurisprudence to to prove uh, Roe v. Wade. And so, um, obviously, the right to privacy is uh, protected under the Fourteenth Amendment. And uh, this decision gave a woman total autonomy over the pregnancy. So during the first trimester, and it defined really different levels of state interest for the second and third trimesters. Okay, so as a result, uh, the laws of 46 out of 50 states were affected by the court's ruling, okay? So pretty much the entire country was affected by this. So this is where we really get the idea or where a lot of people started to really think about, well, if it's legal, it's moral. So you'll see a lot of people kind of making those arguments even today. Well, abortion's legal, so obviously it's moral, right? Which, goodness, that is just some antiquated and ridiculous thinking. But people walk around with it, so it is what it is. But uh, the, the main accomplishment of Roe v. Wade was that it opened the door for abortion for the reason of convenience. And some people are going to be offended that I even said that, but we'll, we'll kind of get into how that's unbelievably true later. But they really just made abortion for the reason of convenience a, a viable thing that people can do now. So <clears throat> what's interesting about if you go back to when Roe v. Wade was decided 45 years ago, um, Roe v. Wade launched the pro-life movement. It really did, because what people thought at the time was that this case shut the door on the abortion debate. They're like, okay, we're going to decide on this, and that's it. But, I mean, literally the exact opposite happened. So uh, the majority opinion was written by Harry Blackman, and he really thought, and he wrote at the time and even wrote years later, that he thought that that was going to end the argument, that America as a society was going to move past this issue with the decision on Roe v. Wade. I mean, even even Rose main lawyer, Sarah Weddington, uh, she said recently, just in the last few years, that she would have never imagined. She may have even said it this year, to be honest, but she she just said she could never could have imagined that this long after four plus decades, almost 50 years after Roe v. Wade, that that we'd still be talking about this. Like it was just supposed to be a settled thing. But as most people have seen as we move forward, there there are some major issues with Roe v. Wade. Um, and whether you're on the, the right or left side of this issue, you've got to see the actual legal issues within this law. So um, I thought that there was a really good arg article by Susan Wills. Uh, she's on the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And so she gave 10 reasons uh, to reject Roe, but there were three that I really wanted to to spell out here. So I'll look at, we'll look at those reasons and I'll read what Susan Wills said. So the first reason was the court's decision in Roe v. Wade exceeded its constitutional authority. This is the most damning of all the things. So it exceeded its constitutional authority. So I'll read straight from the article here. Here. So, under the legal system established by the U.S. Constitution, the power to make laws is vested in Congress and retained by state legislatures. It is not the role of the Supreme Court to substitute the policy preferences of its members for those expressed in laws enacted by the people's elected representatives. The role of the judiciary in constitutional review is to determine if the law being challenged infringes on the constitutionally protected right. Justice O'Connor reiterated this principle, quoting Chief Justice Warren Burger, irrespective of what we may believe is wise or prudent policy in this difficult area, the Constitution does not constitute us as platonic guardians, nor does it vest in this court the authority to strike down laws because they do not meet our standards of desirable social policy, wisdom, or common sense. 
and Roe v. Wade and its companion case, Doe v. Bolton. However, the court struck down criminal laws of Texas and Georgia, which outlawed certain abortions by finding that these laws and those of the other 48 states violated the right of privacy that is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. Such a right is nowhere mentioned in the Constitution, nor derivable from values embodied therein. The second thing that Wills pointed out was a privacy right to decide to have an abortion has no foundation in the text or history of the Constitution. And we'll go back in the article here as well. Roe v. Wade locates a pregnant woman's constitutional right of privacy to decide whether or not to abort her child either in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty, as we feel it is, or in the 9th Amendment's reservation of the rights of the people. The court does not even make a pretense of examining the intent of the drafters of the 14th Amendment to determine if it was meant to protect a privacy interest in abortion. Clearly, it was not. The 14th Amendment was not intended to create any new rights, but to secure to all persons, notably including freed slaves and their descendants, the rights of liberties already guaranteed by the Constitution. And the third thing I'll point out from that article and the last one is that the court describes the right to an abortion as, quote, fundamental, unquote. So let's go right back in the article here as well. The Supreme Court has found certain rights fundamental. Expressed or implied in the Constitution, they are considered deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the American people or implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, such as the free exercise of religion, the right to marry, the right to a fair trial and equal protection. A state law infringing on the fundamental right is reviewed under a rigorous, strict scrutiny standard. In effect, there is a presumption against constitutionality. The Roe Court claims abortion is fundamental on the ground that it is lurking in the penumbras and emanations of the Bill of Rights or the 14th Amendment, along with privacy rights like contraceptive use. It's ludicrous to claim abortion is deeply rooted in American history or traditions or that our governmental system of ordered liberty implicitly demands the rights to destroy one's child, but it was an effective way to foreclose state regulations of abortion. The strict scrutiny test was later abandoned in Casey. So that should give us a little bit of an idea of what actually happened with Roe v. Wade. There's a lot of information there that you may have never heard before. So there was quite a bit of nuance in that case that we just don't get now because, you know, this was obviously, it was before my time. I, I wasn't even born yet. So it's just something that we've been living in the post-Roe v. Wade culture. Uh, but, you know, those are just some details for you there. So let's go ahead and get into part five of the podcast here. And that is arguments for abortion and subsequently why they're wrong, okay? So before anyone starts screaming at the end of this, this is not a comprehensive list. I understand that there are a lot of different issues out there, but I really just narrowed it down to to my top 10, okay? So these are the top 10 arguments for abortion and really why they, why they should be considered wrong. And one thing that you'll notice as I go through these is that none of these arguments really contain verifiably accurate scientific bases. Like they, they just don't, they don't do that. They're more emotive arguments. Okay. So let's just go ahead and go in. So the first one is, well, it's my body, my choice. Okay. So the few things that I want to point out. So, uh, there was a website that compiled some of this information. So let's just look at that. So it's my body, my choice. So the international covenant on civil and political rights says this, it is illegal to execute a pregnant woman on death row because the fetus living inside her is a distinct human being who cannot be executed for the crimes of the mother. It's interesting. So let's look at the NCSL. That's the National Conference of State Legislatures. They said this. As of February 2013, at least 38 states have fetal homicide laws which protect the rights of unborn children independently of the mother, except in the case of abortion, obviously. These laws make it possible to charge someone who kills a pregnant woman with two counts of murder. So obviously the thing there is, you know, you shoot a woman for whatever reason, and the baby also dies inside of her, so you can actually be charged for two counts, okay? So it's not just one, because you killed the mother, two counts. So abort73.com says this, an individual's body parts all share the same genetic code. If the unborn child were actually a part of the mother's body, the unborn cells would have the same genetic code as the cells of the mother. This is not the case. Every cell of the unborn's body is genetically distinct from every cell in the mother's body. Though it's possible for someone to have a transplanted organ that does not share the same genetic code as the rest of their body, that transplanted organ does match the genetic code of the original donor. The same cannot be said of an unborn child. So, 
Let's just put it simply to those who actually make the ridiculous argument that it's your body, your choice. It's not your damn body. It's just not. To argue that is patently absurd. What's inside of you is not your body. Okay. So the second argument that people like to make is no one should be able to tell a woman what to do with her body. Okay. So just for the sake of argument, let's just take away everything that we just said in the last one. So let's just assume that the baby was a part of the woman's body. So I love how Matt Chandler broke this down. I think he did this in his, uh, one of his sermons three or four years ago, but he said it this way, this idea that a woman's body is her own and she can do whatever she wants to do is not true in any domain of society. So let's just kind of tease that out. Prostitution is illegal in just about everywhere in the United States, right? So people are telling women what to do with their body there. Okay. How about streaking? People run streaking in the middle of a football game or something like that. You, you get arrested for that and you get taken to jail for that. You get charged with a crime for that. But why should anyone be able to tell us what to do with our bodies? Right. All right. Let's look at assault and battery. Okay. Uh, so you actually say you're going to threaten, you're threatened physical violence on somebody and then you follow through with it and you do it. Assault and battery. Some of you may even say, well, that infringes on the rights of others. These others do not. And to which point I would say, exactly, exactly. Whenever you're killing something that's inside of you, that's not actually you, you are infringing on the rights of that person. So this, this idea that you can't do whatever you want with your body is just ridiculous. Just, just go try it sometime. Just next time you're driving, just literally rip all your clothes off and just start running down the highway. See how far you can get. I mean, go for it. So the third argument that people like to make is that fertilization or conception doesn't constitute life. So again, let's ignore what Princeton and all the scientists therein said. Uh, let's just go into that argument. So fertilization or conception does not constitute life. So we'll go back with uh, Francis Beckwith. He said this, that there is no doubt, he says, that the zygote is biologically alive because it fulfills the four criteria needed to establish biological life. And those are number one, metabolism, number two, growth, number three, reactions to stimuli, and number four, reproduction. So this, I guess, begs the question that if you're going to be making that argument is when is it a life? So, so when is it actually a life? Okay. So, uh, and then some other questions that really go with that because people want to say different things and, and we'll get into some of those here in a second, but just a, a random thought that I've had for a while is why do we get so excited for people in our lives, like our loved ones or our friends when they have a birth announcement or, or just like a pregnancy announcement? Like, why are we excited I mean, because we're excited about the potential of life. That that seems kind of ridiculous. And here's another one. Why do they call them baby showers? If what's growing inside that woman is not actually a baby, I mean, wouldn't it be more specific to call it, you know, meaningless clumps of cells showers? Like, there's a lot of people that are pro-choice that go to baby showers. And I'm just like, why aren't they picketing and wearing pussy hats to those things? Like, because that seems kind of crazy. Like, I mean, I understand meaningless clumps of cells showers doesn't have the same ring to it, but it's just kind of weird if what's growing inside of there is not actually a baby. So um, we'll move on to the fourth argument here and that it's not a person until it's sentient, that sentience equals moral value. Okay. So for some of you, sentience may be a a new word. Uh, It's the ability to perceive and feel things. That's kind of the best, easiest way. I think that's the Webster dictionary version of that. So um, some of you may have heard this the first time whenever uh, Ben Shapiro, who is a uh, political commentator that goes and does speeches on college campuses, he was doing an event at uh, Cal Berkeley and he had an exchange with a student and the student kind of, he formulated this question to him and he said, why do you think a first trimester fetus has moral value? Okay. And so this was Ben Shapiro's response. He said, anytime you draw a line, any line other than the inception of the child, you end up drawing a false line that would also be applied to people that are adults. Either human life has intrinsic value or it doesn't. And so the the kid didn't really like that answer. And so Ben Shapiro just asked him a question back. He says, if you are in a coma from which you may awake, can I stab you? And the student responded by saying, that's still potential sentience. And Ben Shapiro came back and said, I agree. That's potential sentience. You know what else is potential sentience? Being a fetus. So that was kind of like, you know, a big moment. He kind of owned the kid with that. But when, when people are saying, I mean, they can't be can't be valuable unless they're sentient. It's kind of ridiculous because how many people are brain dead? How many people's, uh, 
uh, hearts are being kept pumping by pacemakers and how many people are in comas from which that they they may awake. So this idea that those people don't have moral value is just really ridiculous. And so this is obviously connected to the previous one. But the fifth argument that people make is that if the baby is unwanted, why should we force hardship on the mother? So actually, this was still part of this connection between the student and Ben Shapiro whenever they were talking about this. Um, and Ben Shapiro's his response was great. It was being a burden on somebody isn't justification justification for them killing you. So you're a burden on somebody. They can't just kill you because you're a burden. So obviously, we're, we're talking about babies here. But what if we were talking about elder, elderly people or physically disabled people, mentally disabled people like those people are all burdens. Like, why can't we kill them? So how about why don't why can't we kill unwanted kids after birth? I mean, they're, they're, if you buy like a puppy from a breeder, they they give you like eight weeks or so to be like, hey, see if you like this thing, and then you can bring it back. Like, why can't we do that with kids? Like, why can't we just kill them if we don't don't want them when they're like two or three years old? So why why would that be murder? I mean, if if we're thinking, you have to think about the line of argumentation here. What is the difference? Again, we kind of come back to is the vaginal vaginal canal, you know, magical. It's just kind of kind of ridiculous to actually think that way. So let's go into a sixth argument that people make and that is what about hard case abortions, okay? And so normally people would look at a hard case abortion as rape, incest or health risks to the mother. So this is obviously very serious and we need to really look at the reality of what's happening in these situations and the statistics that go along with it. So um, this is from uh, Allen Guttmacher Institute. And so this is just some statistics in these areas that we just talked about. So the actual percentage of U.S. abortions in hard cases are estimated as follows. In cases of rape, that's 0.3% of all abortions. In the cases of incest, it's 0.03% of all abortions. In the cases of risk to maternal life, that is 0.1% of all abortions. In the cases of risk to maternal health, that is 0.8% of all abortions. And in the cases of fetal health issues, it is 0.5% of all abortions. So basically about 98.3% of abortions in the United States are elective. So that's including socioeconomic reasons for uh, a birth control, okay? So again, let's go back. So rape and incest combined, that is 0.33% of all abortions. And maternal health risk, that is 0.8% of all abortions. Now, I want to be clear about something. Every single one of those is horrible, okay? If somebody is raped and impregnated, if somebody is raped by a family member and impregnated, if, if there is a risk to the mother, her health, or her death, that is a, a horrible thing. That is absolutely terrible. But we have to be real about something here if we're going to be talking about the abortion issue as a macro issue. The overwhelming amount of abortions take place because of personal convenience. 98.3% of abortions in the United States take place because of reasons like I can't afford the baby. I'm not ready for a family. I hate the father. I don't know who the father is. I'm too young to have a child or whatever those reasons may be. It's for the reasons of personal convenience. So the, the thing is, is when you're talking to somebody normally in the conversation, this is how it normally goes. When someone brings up the rape or incest argument, that this is an emotional argumentation tool, okay? And this is try uh, really their attempt to assuage the entire abortion, abortion debate by bringing up an unbelievably rare case and representing it as part of the rule or as part of the whole, okay? Um, and another video link I'll put at the in the show notes is Ben Shapiro again was on a college campus talking to a young lady. They were talking about transgenderism for a bit and then they moved on to the abortion tactic. Um, and Basically, he was just kind of talking about if you're willing to say that the 98.3% of all other abortions that take place in the United States, if you're willing to say that those are immoral and wrong, then we can have a serious discussion about the other ones in the cases of rape, incest, and potential death or health uh, concerns for the mother. But the thing about it is, is just about all the people that make the argument about rape, well, what about rape and incest? And what about if the mother's life is at risk? Those people think that abortion is generally okay in just about all settings, right? They, they think abortion should be something they should do. They think pro-choice is a way to go, right? So the, the thing about it is, is it's really hard to have a macro discussion uh, or dispute on a topic when people just want to talk about such rare, rare cases. And there's a real thing here that you can defend the life 
of an unborn child without minimizing the damage done to the impregnated woman, right? So we, we can defend what's going on inside the woman. That is not the woman, but it's a separate person. And, and we could really do what we can, especially as Christians, to, to help these women that are going through these horrible situations. I mean, we can be furious about abortion while feeling true sadness and empathy for a victim of a forced sexual encounter that is now impregnated. So uh, I really like what uh, the Human Coalition did here. They actually posted an article about three questions in this particular area, but there are two that I think were especially pertinent to what we're talking about right now. The first one is, should we kill another human being because we have been victimized? And so the example that they came up with is, let's say you were robbed and beaten at gunpoint, right? And then they take off running and they got all your stuff. Does that mean that you can kill an innocent bystander that was just sitting there because you were victimized? Like, we wouldn't actually think that that was a good idea. And the second question was, should we kill an unborn baby because once born, he or she may remind the mother of her attacker? So uh, really, you have to think about, think about all the times where you feel... Like when you see somebody, there's an issue with seeing them. It causes anger or frustration or sadness. I mean, think about if you get a divorce or you're estranged from your parents or maybe your brother or sister, uh, friendships that end in betrayal, any of those types of things. Would we think it was okay to kill those people? Because when you see them in public, it might bring up some awkward feelings. I mean, it's actually demeaning to women, right? That somehow they're not strong enough to conquer the negative impact of rape in order to, to raise a child or at least place a child for adoption, like it really kind of diminishes the, the, the power of a woman to be able to overcome that. I mean, here's the thing is, is no one in their right mind should, should take impregnation via rape or incest lightly or flippantly. Right. And I'm certainly not, but, but murdering another human being doesn't erase the sexual assault. That that's just the reality. It, it legitimately just adds to the body count. If we just start killing the babies that are a part of this. And again, I understand how crazy that might sound, but you cannot erase one sin by sinning in another direction. Okay. So let's look at the seventh argument that a lot of people make. So here's the seventh one. Pro-lifers only care about the child while in the womb and they don't care about them after. This is kind of a a newly popular one, right? The, The thing about this is, is this one's pretty easy to refute. If this were true, then why are there more crisis pregnancy care centers in the U.S. today than there are abortion providers or abortion clinics? I mean, really, there there are plenty of things out there in these crisis pregnancy centers. They help women psychologically, financially. They help them with the adoption process. And there's plenty of ministries out there for single moms. So this idea that pro-lifers don't care is absolutely ridiculous. The eighth argument a lot of people make is that even if the unwanted baby is taken to term and born, there wouldn't be a family available to adopt them. Okay, so the Evan B. Donaldson Adoption Institute, so like an authority on this issue, says the following. It tells us that the number of infants available for private adoption in the United States has been decreasing. The factors which have contributed to this this change are increased access to contraception, changed social attitudes about unmarried parenting, and the big one, the legalization of abortion. Between 1989 and 1995, 1.7% of the child or the children born to never married white women were placed for adoption, compared to 19.3% before 1973. In 1970, there were 89,200 new adoptive parents. In 1975, the last year for which such data is available, that number was cut almost in half to 47,700. The reason for the decline was not due to fewer parents wanting to adopt, but rather the fact that the fewer U.S.-born white infants were available for adoption. Babies, which would have been adopted prior to 1973, were being aborted after 1973. Despite a lack of hard adoption numbers, the federal government really hasn't collected statistics on adoption since 1977, the National Council for Adoption has collected and published national adoption data for the years 1982, 1986, 1992, and 1996. Their conclusion is that if women knew that there are many couples hoping to adopt for every adoptable infant, the adoption is beneficial to most adopted persons and birth mothers who make an adoption plan, there would be more adoptions. So, I say all that to say, and I looked right at that information to make the argument that there is clearly not a shortage of adoptive families. There's just a shortage of babies that need homes. That since Roe v. Wade, a lot of these unwanted babies were actually just, you know, had their skulls crushed and sucked out of their mom's wombs, okay? 
Let's look at the ninth argument that a lot of people make. Pro-lifers just hate women. I mean, this is this is a really a bully club that a lot of people like to use today. But th- this might be the dumbest of all the arguments that I've mentioned so far. Like, here's the thing. It is my extreme love and devotion to women that helps aid in my thoughts on this issue. Because I think that everyone on the planet, whether whatever their religion is, whatever their sex is, whatever their race is, is made in the image of God. They have the Imago Day. Okay, so the thing about this is that political left people that are on the political left and feminists like to make this argument. But here would be my question to those feminists: Where's your outrage about Chinese people aborting millions of baby girls because they prefer boys? I mean, seriously, where are you at, first, second, third wave feminists? Why aren't you picketing and wearing pussy hats in China, communist China? Why don't you go over there and do that? Because they literally prefer boys over there. It's just kind of part of the culture and part of how how things have been passed down. And millions of little girls have been aborted. Why are we fighting for the, the rights of those women? Like, it's just a ridiculous argument because you get defeated on one plane and then you just want to jump to the other. So this idea that pro-lifers just hate women is absurd. And the last argument I want to look at is, what about the dad? Okay? A lot of people didn't think I was going to go into this area, but oh boy, we're going. Here's the thing. Dad is a piece of garbage if he leaves mom. Okay? If dad gets mom knocked up, that that's that's terrible in all situations, right? But here's the deal. God's design is that mom carries baby. Okay? We, we can't change that. Or I guess if you think we're just highly evolved monkeys that wear pants, uh, biologically based on a bunch of random chances that happened billions of light years ago or whatever it is that you believe, uh, that however that happens, the mom carries, okay? The the female carries the baby, okay? But basically, this manifests itself societally by dad being a cowardly dick and leaving, right? That That's the way we normally look at this. But the thing about this is the statistics are getting worse, not better in this area. So we, we have all these things and we have everyone talking about it, but, but no one's really defining what the issue is and how they can solve it, right? So when you look at the uh, CDC, or that's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 40% of all births in the United States now are to unmarried women. 40%. Okay? Like, that has skyrocketed since in the early 1970s when Roe v. Wade went into force, right? So it's hard to say that because of Roe v. Wade that that's 100% causal to this issue, but it sure is interesting that this, you know, percentage of all the births to unmarried women is skyrocketing around the same time as sexual revolution, Roe v. Wade, all those types of things. And the stats get really ridiculous when you start looking more specifically at them. So uh, in 1965, about 24% of black babies were born out of wedlock. Today, it is tripled to 77%. In 1965, about 3% of white babies were born out of wedlock. Today, it has gone up by 10 times. 30% of babies born today in white babies are born out of wedlock. So, And then also about 50% of Hispanic babies are born out of wedlock. So there's such a huge issue here. And the thing is, is dads are leaving at unbelievable clips. And I really think that society as a whole uh, and individual communities should shame these men, demand that they take care of these children and mothers. We've gotten into a society where, oh, you know, we don't want to judge and we don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. And gosh, who am I to say something in that situation? Are you kidding me? Like, if it was your brother, wouldn't you go up to your brother and be like, bro, you got to take care of this. Like, you can't just walk out because it would be really, really hard. Yeah, uh, you probably shouldn't have shoved your dick in her and got her pregnant. Like, hello? That's part of the process. That's how this happened. Like, you learned that. You did not take the, the necessary precautions before this to prevent this from happening. So, yes, dad doesn't have to carry, so dad can just take off, right? The, the woman can't just like take off her stomach and leave it and then let someone else deal with it. She can terminate the pregnancy, but she can't just leave it, right? She's got to go through that process. So to these men, I'm with you. So I think we can all agree on this this idea that dad needs to stick around. The, the guy that got her pregnant needs to stick around and deal with that situation, okay? So you're not going to have any argument for me on that one. So Let's go ahead and go into our last part here. And that is, what is our role as warriors of God in this fight for life? Okay. So I want to break it down into to three areas that I really think would be helpful for all of us guys and all of you guys listening when it comes to this fight. <clears throat> the first is to educate yourself. Okay. 
So just ask yourself, how much of the stuff that I covered tonight did you already know? I mean, and I'm not saying I'm some sort of savant. Like I, I had to do research and these are things that I've just gained, knowledge that I've gained over the years. But how much of it did you just already know? Like, did you know what was going on at eight weeks in the womb? I didn't until someone told me. Like, I didn't know what was going on. Did you know Trump was the first president to speak boldly on this issue? I'm not exactly a huge Trump guy, but I mean, that was kind of a big deal. Do you know what's going on in in modern law, especially in the West, when it comes to different abortions? Like, you really need to educate yourself. And educating yourself on certain things you can just do once and it doesn't change. Like, you know, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, what's going on at eight weeks in the womb is not really going to be much different. But you have to stay up on current abortion issues. So, again, the first way that we can get into this fight is to educate yourself, okay? And the second is to argue intelligently and tactfully, okay? And, and I really, really want to focus on that because the intelligence part is going to come from your knowledge, but a lot of people just like to bludgeon people to death with the things that they know. So that's where the tact comes in, right? The thing is, is can you influence people to change their opinions? Like, do you have the ability to influence somebody enough to where they're going to be going in a different direction than before you started talking to them? Like you really need to work on that. So, and here, the other part of it is that, are you willing to call people out for believing things that are just absolutely false? Like, I think I may have talked about this. I don't know if it was on this podcast or on a different podcast I was being interviewed on. But one thing that that I do is is I try to tactfully and lovingly correct people when they're wrong. But I can't do anything about it if they're unwilling to be corrected. So one thing that has saved me a lot of time and effort and really stress is when I enter into a discussion with somebody that there is a not, not necessarily a debate going on, but where they've made a misstatement of something, they've said something that was false. I basically ask them one question. I say, if you were wrong, would you even want to know? So homeboy thinks that the earth is flat and we can pretty much prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's not. I basically ask him, if you were wrong, would you even want to know? And his response to that question is going to give me an idea of how much I need to engage, right? So if he's like, well, I mean, I guess if, if someone could really prove it to me, I think I would change my mind. Or if they're just like, no, I, you know, the earth is flat. You're, you're part of the Illuminati. If you don't believe that and blah, 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 then you just don't enter into the conversation with that person. You would enter in with the other guy, the person that's open to it. Right. And here's the thing you have to, to realize, especially in this debate, the arguments are always shifting. So when you get somebody on the scientific evidence, which we've gone over a lot here, they move on to women's rights, right? So they move from something that's tangible, evidence-based, to something that's more emotion-driven, right? Uh, When you get them on the horrors of the procedure that an abortion actually is, they want to switch to, you know, when people get a non-clinical abortion, you know, the... uh, the clothes hanger abortion or something like that. So you've got to be able to have enough tact and enough confidence in those situations to where you can stop them from shifting the argument and basically call them out for doing so. Okay. And and here's the deal is this isn't a political issue. Like it's really not, this is a human rights issue. It just plays itself out in a political realm. Right? So, so really the question is, can you play ball? Can you talk to your Senator or any one of your state representatives and have a, you know, cogent conversation about this, right? Because you know, you'll need to get through that conversation quickly. Can you intelligently and tactfully speak in a situation like that? So again, the first thing I think every guy should do is to educate yourself. The second is to argue intelligently and tactfully, which is going to take some practice. But the third and most important is you have to enter the fight. You just absolutely have to. Don't be a coward. This isn't going to get changed and we're not going to be able to fix this this thing that's happening, this genocide that's happening in our society by just sitting around and complaining about it to our friends that are just, you know, echoing the exact same things that we're saying. So uh, I really love an article that came out last week. Um, It was written on the Gospel Coalition's website. It was called The Pro-Life Movement Needs More Wilberforces. Okay. So obviously they were making reference to William Wilberforce and uh, what he did to help end the African slave trade. And the thing that was so interesting about that is people just thought he was fighting for law, Right. Like he was just finding to get the law changed, which, which he certainly did him and all of his people. They certainly did that, but they did it first by changing the landscape of the argument. So they didn't just go to parliament the entire time. They were changing the landscape of the argument in the minds of the people before the law changed. Because you may have heard me say this before. Politics lives downstream of culture in a lot of ways. I mean, 10 years ago, the idea of same sex marriage was just an absurd thing culturally and so politically it wasn't even an issue but as soon as the culture changed on it then politically all of a sudden it became a you know a campaign slogan right so we really have to 
change our culture around this certain topic, right? And so for us as guys, ways that we're going to enter the fight, it's like we've, we've got to support these women, right? These women that are going through this decision, we need to support them. If they go through with the pregnancy, we need to support them after. We need to support the babies. We need to support the families that adopt these babies. Like all those people in that process are feeling some sort of pain and hurt or just some sort of negative emotion that we as men, we can step right in and fix those things. I mean, if, if you're looking for a place to maybe spend your dollars, maybe that's how you think you want to get involved. I think there's a, a great resource called ICU Mobile. So ICU standing for image clear ultrasound. But th- the thing about Roe v. Wade is Roe v. Wade, if it were tried today, wouldn't would probably not even get close to being passed because at that time in the early 70s, they did not have ultrasounds. Like a woman could literally not see and thus not personalize what was going on inside of them. They couldn't see the human-like features. They couldn't see that, you know, at 24, 25 weeks or so, that this is a real human that, with help, could live outside the womb, right? And there was another fantastic article posted last week by Emma Green over at The Atlantic. It's called, Science is Giving the Pro-Life Movement a Boost. So here's a really good quote from this article. It says, These advances fundamentally shift the moral intuition around abortion. New technology makes it easier to apprehend the humanity of a growing child and imagine a fetus as a creature with moral status, okay? So that's a really important thing. Again, it goes right back. So basically, to get back to what ICU Mobile is, is basically this is a mobile ultrasound company, right? So these women go, and these pregnant women who are considering having abortions, they basically bring these women into these uh, big trucks, and they give them an ultrasound to basically humanize the person inside of them, right? And the statistics about these women that actually change their minds and decide to not get abortions is astounding. It's absolutely incredible. And so this ministry, ICU Mobile, like they're not just, you know, giving these ultrasounds. They're like, all right, well, have fun with your decision. Like a lot of these women are actually becoming Christians. They are becoming disciples of Jesus Christ because of this exact ministry, right? So it it begins with trying to save the life that's inside this woman, but then we end up saving the soul of the woman, right? And and the other thing that I want to say under this about entering the fight is, is we've got to challenge our pastors to discuss this directly. So one thing that I've seen in the modern day church, which absolutely drives me insane, is that a lot of these pastors, especially of larger churches, I don't like just picking on megachurch pastors because pastors across the board do this, but they don't like discussing these issues, these like really, really controversial issues. Like they don't want to talk about transgenderism. They don't want to talk about same-sex attraction. They don't want to talk about uh, Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. They don't want to talk about these things because they think it might piss off some of the people in the crowd and that they may not come back and hang out. Uh, And so there was a church that my wife and I went to for a short period here in the Oklahoma City area. And I asked them, I was like, hey, uh, haven't heard y'all really talk about this issue, but what are the ministries that you all are involved in in this area of, you know, basically protecting life and helping women that are going through this process? And the answer was they didn't have one. Not a single ministry in all of Oklahoma City in the metropolitan area to help in this area to help in this exact issue. Like I was flabbergasted. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Not a single one. And here's the deal. Like, you know, your Craig Rochelle's of the world and your Stephen Furtick's and your Carl Lentz's and your Judah Smith's like these mega church, like super Twitter, Instagram, famous pastor guys. They don't talk about this issue. They just won't, they won't touch it because it's incredibly controversial. And of course, when they get on TV or when they're interviewed about it, they'll say something along the lines of, oh, you know, I want to have a conversation with these people and I don't want to, I don't want to split people up and all that. But these are people that are not helping their flock. There are so many people that need to know the things that I talked about in this episode for themselves, that they would really like it if their pastors would actually, I don't know, pastor them and help them in these areas. But, but that's the thing is, is we, as the men of the church, we need to make them right. Like we can control us. And we can influence those around us, but our pastors can influence people infinitely more. And here's the deal. Those pastors are going to have to answer for how they led their flocks, right? Like, I'm not going to have to answer for it. At the church that I go to in Edmond, Oklahoma, I'm not going to answer for what's being taught there. The pastors are. So we need to demand from them that they talk about this issue because it is wildly important. And here's the other thing, as if we don't, we may see a continued separation in the pro-life movement away from some sort of gospel-centric catalyst, right? 
because here's the deal is the pro-life thing is becoming way more of a right-wing political issue than it is becoming an Imago Day gospel-centered issue, right? A creationism gospel-centered issue, right? So it's up to us to demand that that changes a little bit, okay? So before we end this episode, I want to do, go ahead and do our quick resilience boost. So just as a reminder to you guys, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And so specifically, we provide content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Today, I want to talk about mental resilience. So obviously, talked about a lot of different things in this episode. I made reference to a lot of different uh, resources for all of you. So in the link, okay, so in the in the bio for this, so if you're listening to this on SoundCloud or, or iTunes or, or Google Play, um, in the notes, you're going to find links to everything I made reference to today, okay? Every single thing. I want you to read those articles. I want you to read that research and watch those videos, okay? So they're all listed there. And for some of you, you're going to be able to knock that out in one sitting. For some of you, it's going to take you a week. I don't care. Go through it. It'll give you a good primer of the arguments that are being made, the science that's out there. Like you want to gain that knowledge, but I want you to start with one in particular, and this is going to be at the very top of the list. Okay. So earlier I went through obviously the methods of an abortion and all the things that were compiled by all.org. I want you to go through those first. There are some videos in the, in there that actually go into the process of these abortions. And again, in these videos, it's cartoons of these things happening, but they're horrific. They are absolutely horrific. So I want you to have that as your basis as you go through all of those different things. Okay, guys, thank you as always for sticking with us through the end. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and obviously share on social media. If you share this on social media, we will find it and we will give it a like and give it a thumbs up. If we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one. That is how this podcast is going to continue to grow if it keeps getting those five-star reviews. Our website is www.undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life and on Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under the plans section. We also want to thank, as always, the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem, and the links to that are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. 